broadcasting from the third coast and recorded live at Tripod South Studios. This is The Hango Show. So how you been doing? Good. You, you know, I'm living on a boat. Yeah. I blew a couple of engines, so I'm kind of stuck here. Oh, no. Until the engines replace. You know, I bought this boat in Nashville, and I was really going to sail all the way down to Florida, the Bahamas, do the whole Lesser Antilles run, South America, Mexico, come back up through the Keys, and then decide where to go. Right. But I blew my engines, so I'm sitting here waiting on money to kind of pile up. Yeah. Um, so then I'll replace the engines probably November, December, and then go. Okay. Well, there's, I mean, you got to wait another summer. One more thing, you know. Um, no, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, everybody. Four months away. Okay. Yeah. So you ain't got too, too long to wait. I mean, it would be nice to be down in the Caribbean yeah. this time of year, but it is what it is. That's right. Yeah. Hey, everybody. This is the Hango Show. This is your host, Hango Wood. And tonight I've got a, um, very special guest, a guy that I, when I started doing this podcast, I wanted to get him on at some time, but, uh, this man is kind of like, um, how should I, kind of like my, my mentor really into libertarianism. Uh, when I really, when I first, uh, got interested in libertarianism, I reached out to the party and they put me in contact with somebody nearby who, who was, you know, part of the libertarian party and, they gave me his contact info, and and they gave him my contact info, and he contacted me. Um, he's became more than a mentor, more of a, a friend, a guy I can bounce stuff off of. We've had a lot of really good discussions about libertarianism and life and everything else. Uh, he's a former chair of the Mississippi Libertarian Party. He's a, uh, a former Navy diver, and now he's a modern-day pirate living on his boat. Uh, Mr. Danny Bedwell, how you doing, Danny? Uh, man, I'm good. I'm really good. Great. Good. No, I, I thought tonight, we as, just... as you say, I'm living on a boat and it get any better. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, when it's good, it's good. We hadn't really talked a lot. I don't think we talked much at all during the, um, we didn't really get a chance to talk it much at all since like the Trump administration. Uh, I was kind of off of Facebook. You were getting ready to set sail. <laughs> so there wasn't a whole lot, a whole lot of connection going on there. Um, but something that I heard all through Trump's administration was he's the most libertarian president we've ever had. And I kept telling everybody, no, he's not. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you're clutching your chest already. Yeah. <laughs> So what did you think about the entire Trump administration? I think it was the exact same as the Obama administration and the same as Bush the Younger and Bush the Elder and the Clinton in between and all the way back. It's just central planning authoritarianism. Uh, I think with Trump, there's a little bit more of a patriotic nationalist type uh, fervor that he was able to, you know, get, get the people behind him and. But it was the same thing. You know, He one of the things he did, Tango, was got rid of NAFTA. And he said, oh, we're going to free the markets. So he got rid of NAFTA and came up with CUSMA, or the Canada-U.S.-Mexico Agreement. And as a business owner, and I, uh, you know, I export to Mexico, Canada. It's the exact same thing as NAFTA. Mm. It really is. It's the exact same thing with the exception of it's got Trump's name on it. And all of his followers think it's the best thing since sliced bread because Trump did it. Right. So, yeah, uh, I think uh, when you look at the big scheme of things from 400 years ago, you know, we back in the 1770s, we kind of advanced liberty a little bit. And then it's just went downhill f- from there. It really has. And. Even though we get Democrat and Republican, you know, presidents and Congresses and all this, the uh, the advancement of liberty, uh, or of I like to call it liberalism, mm. the advancement of liberalism, uh, uh, 
has, has gone away, right. you know, and now we just get different flavors of central planning authoritarianism. That's a great way to put and it. I'm sure the next president will be the same way. Yeah, guys, I mean, Biden's already doing the same thing now. Like you said, it's just like a continuation yeah. of one upon, upon another upon another. Um, yeah. I, the, the, I can't bang on Trump people too, too, too much. Because it's like you said, it's just another swing of the pendulum, you know. It goes far left and far right, far left, and, and it keeps going further and further and further away from each other. Have Have, have you seen that as a problem mm-hmm. with trying to pull people, or not really trying to pull, trying to convince people that left or right is not the way to go? Is Is the center is libertarianism becoming more prevalent because of it? You think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I was in a conversation the other day because somebody called me a radical. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, I'm a moderate. You know, I'm in the middle here. I think the radical position, the radical position is to gang up on someone or outnumber them, you know, and whether it's at the ballot box or in a dark alley somewhere. Right. But to outnumber someone and then impose your will onto them, that's the radical position. Mm. You know, I just want to be left alone, and in exchange for that, I will leave other people alone. I think that's a pretty moderate position. So, yeah, we do have these swings left to right, but it's the exact same thing. I, I, I hate the phrase left to right because it's the same. Yeah, it's, it's true. Central planning authoritarianism, you got, you know, top-down governance. Uh, we got smart people with a blue flag or smart people, the red flag and their grand schemes are the best for you. And uh, to me, it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat. So let's, let's go a little more local now. Um, uh, Mississippi passed a, uh, a ballot initiative on medical marijuana. Um, I know where you stand on it. I know where I stand on it. Um, as far as people have been doing it for years anyway, but, um, when, when the Supreme court of the state steps in and says, we're going to throw this out, even though 75% of the people in the state voted in favor of it, uh, do you think that's an issue? That's a problem. That's a big problem. And I, I was telling uh, Addison, and a guy's got another show on, on our network. I said maybe because it seems like both Democrats and Republicans are saying that's that should not have been done that way. The people voted on it; it should have been it should stand. And I said maybe people sure. will see now yeah. that you know, no matter what you vote for or what what the consensus wants, the government can always come in and say no, you can't have it. That's right. That's exactly right. You know. Here locally in our state, in my state of Mississippi, that medical uh, marijuana initiative, when the Supreme Court threw it out, great. The legislature had it within their power, within an hour, to call an emergency session and pass a law that allows for medical marijuana. And just say, yeah, ballot initiative, uh, what was it, 65? Uh, The people wanted that, therefore, it is now law. Then the Supreme Court doesn't have a have a leg to stand on. Mm. So it, we tried to pass the medical marijuana initiative through the uh, the the, the uh, ballot initiative process. Well, since the Supreme Court overruled that ballot initiative process, we could have went right to the legislature and said, "Okay, skip the ballot initiative, make it legal today, right now, within an hour, go, and let's find out where these legislators stand." And I think that, you know, all the legislators were publicly saying, oh, what a travesty. And it was all political. They're saying, what a travesty. The Supreme Court overruled the will of the people. Well, they could have fixed it within an hour. So, but they didn't. Right. What what got me was on on the ballot itself, they said you can vote for either the initiative put forward by by the campaign groups, the ones who were really pushing for medical marijuana in, in Mississippi, or you can vote on this one that our legislature kind of tacked together 
<laughs> like right the exact opposite of everything that the the initiative group had put out the, the initiative group's uh platform looked really good it seemed very pro business um it it seemed like they were really trying to help um not only build a medical outlet for patients who need or who want who think that medical marijuana will help them, but it also built out like an economic plan where there was no limit on licensing or anything else. It was like a very pro market uh, layout, and no one wanted, no one in the state wanted the one that the legislature tacked together. Everybody voted seventy five percent for the initiative itself. And right. Then when they then when they went to talk about it in the in the in the state congress or whatever they were trying to add taxes to it and doing this and doing that. Yep. So what was the use of even having the initiative to begin with? That's right. You know, I kind of quietly opposed the initiative because I thought it put way too much power to the state. Mm. Um, I, I didn't actively campaign against it, but I talked to the framers, the people that had written the ballot initiative and tried to convince them that we do not need to increase taxes and we do not need to grow the size, scope and role of government. Mm. And, you know, I was laughed down, of course. And they said, <laughs> well, you got to, you know, uh, you got to no, give the legislator something. Well, right now what we've got is the Department of Health and they get to decide the way the initiative was written, they get to decide who is worthy of treating themselves and who is not. This person here can treat themselves, but if we catch this person here treating themselves using cannabis, we're throwing him in jail. Now, there's a lot of veterans that suffer from PTSD, and cannabis helps them. Well, a lot of these veterans have government jobs, and they don't want to go on file at the Department of Health saying I'm I'm using cannabis to treat my PTSD because once they do that, they're already talking about revoking your gun permit if you happen to get one of those uh, and all sorts of things. So the ballot initiative that I really proposed and I wanted basically said it is no longer a crime to own, transport, buy, sell, barter, Smoke, eat, ingest, grow, transport, cannabis, the end. Now, we don't have to, all we have to do is decriminalize it. We don't want to give it to the state legislature to regulate and tax. And that's where I think this ballot initiative really went, was we took a product that was not regulated by the state, and it was not taxed by the state, and we gave it to the state to tax and regulate. And as a flaming libertarian <laughs> that uh you know that insults me a little bit yeah i agree um uh, as, as somebody asked me one time my opinion on it i was like well, i think i think marijuana should be handled like tomatoes it should be taxed right and legislated like tomatoes are They're like well it's not i'm like exactly it should just be it should, it should be left yeah. alone <laughs> i mean treat it like socks or an ear of corn or something <laughs> uh uh, Colorado, you know, when they did it here last year, they were bragging that their legalization, what, what it's done is provided the Colorado legislature with nearly $1 billion. It was like 991 million, almost $1 billion in revenue. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's a $1 billion tax increase. That $1 billion used to be in somebody's pocket. Yeah. It used to be in some sick guy's pocket. And now all of a sudden it's in the state legislature's pocket. No, And no, no amount of money laundering can change that. Money that used to be in my pocket is now in the state legislature's pocket. And that's what I'm against. Yeah. <clears throat> if, we could, if we could just decriminalize it, you know, uh, uh, make it to where the cops stop arresting people. Uh, stop just make it no longer a crime to own the Mississippi Delta. There are millions of acres that they grow cotton and corn and soybeans. If there was no regulation on it, 
all those farmers out there. We could probably get the price of cannabis down to like two or three dollars a bale. <laughs> you know, I, I agree. I, I totally agree. Um, uh, Matt and Addison, a bunch of the guys, they're on the same network here with me. They live in, in around St. Louis. And okay. so when Illinois uh, passed recreational marijuana, uh, from time to time, they would go over there and partake. Um, and I'd asked Addison, I said, well, how, how are they, how are they taxing it? He said, it's the most asinine shit you've ever seen in your life. He said, it's a slot for, for tourists, quote unquote, tourists to come to the state and purchase marijuana. It's on, mm-hmm. they, they use some kind of crazy sliding scale taxation on weight or content or both. And they take that number and divide it by 3.14 and, and they round it up. He said, you, you have, yeah. you, you have no idea how much you're really going to be paying when you get to the register. And I said, well, has the state decided what they were going to do with the money? He's like, no, no, they're just putting it in a, in, in a separate account. I said, well, it's going to be gone. <laughs> that money's yeah. going to vanish. Yeah. They're already so upside down, Illinois. Uh, I mean, their budget, they're, uh, they keep avoiding b- bankruptcy by borrowing money, kind of like the federal government. They borrow a bunch of money, bail them out, and pass the debt on to, you, to the grandkids and whatever. But, uh, yeah, they got to, Illinois has got to do something. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't see how, uh, some other guys I, was ta- I, I, I know, they went to Colorado and they said Colorado has, no delivery services allowed. Now I knew like in LA, they had like, you could order pot online and have it delivered to your house in Vegas. You can do the same thing. And I said, what's the reason? He said, don't know. They just, they don't allow any kind of pot delivery out here. I'm like, well, that's a whole other industry. They're shutting down. What are they doing? Yeah. I mean, the black market here in Mississippi allows for that. Absolutely. And I've always so, said that black markets are free markets. It's the way it should be. That's right. The only free market is the black market. That's very and it true. shouldn't be a black market. It should be the open market. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, we put the put the stigma of, of a black market on something, you know, that it's bad. Yeah. No, that's it's the way it operates. Yeah. And uh, they've driven the, the free market into the back alleys. Mm. You know? And they shouldn't have done it. They should embrace the free market and just allow people to buy and sell shit all willy-nilly yeah one of the guys i have here close friend of mine uh jut he's got a a vape shop here locally and he said it's just uh, the fda has just been killing that entire industry um yeah probably as probably three or four months ago the fda decided to regulate any vape product whether it be a device juice coils cotton anything to do with with vaping under the PACT Act. So it could not yeah, be shipped yeah. through, it could not be shipped from retailer to home anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, that's just another, they've done everything they could over the last 10 years to shut down the vape industry uh, from big tobacco to the government itself. Yeah. I like they're not holding hands yeah. already. And I think, you know, the government, when it does it, it's because of big tobacco, right? You know, uh, 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 Phillips Morris, I'm sure they've got a bunch of legislators, uh, on the payroll. So well, I saw you posted an article yesterday or day one about your local jail is trying to yeah. find more beds for the juveniles. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't call them jail cells. No, they called them beds. They called nor more beds for juveniles. So what is it all just like you said, you were talking about stop arresting people for pot. Is it, is it mostly, you know what you want, what the problem is with the juveniles? What, why they're well, locking all of them up. Of in, that they say that there's a spike in violence in Starkville, which is only, uh, you know, 25, 30 miles away from me where I live, which is Columbus, Mississippi. So this town 30 miles away, there's uh, where Mississippi State University is, there's a spike in violence in the American Utes. And uh, whether it's burglaries, it's not really burglaries. It's actually violent crime. Not that burglary is a violent crime. It is. 
But, I mean, there's a lot of stabbings and shootings and fights and whatnot. And I don't know what the solution to it is, but very seldom is the solution. We just need more jails, you know. <laughs> uh, it just it drives me nuts. And one, one of the concepts that I've always liked, let's go back to Illinois for a second. Okay. You know, uh, Illinois got, uh, what is it, Marion uh, Federal Penitentiary, High Security Penitentiary in southern Illinois. Um, inmates from all over the place go there. Now, there's also some state prisons around Illinois, and 90% of these state prisons are occupied by people that committed crimes in, say, Chicago. Well, then they ship them off to, you know, 100 miles away to some other state prison and put them in jail there. What I would like to see is done away with the prison, the state prison system and just have county jails. And what that does is it puts control locally. So if all of a sudden the county jail here where I live, you know, criminals from Jackson don't get to get shipped here. If right. you commit a crime in Jackson, you go to the Jackson County or the whatever it is, Hines County jail. If you commit a crime here in Columbus, Mississippi, you go to the Lowndes County jail. Now, all of a sudden, the taxpayers of Lowndes County are paying for your upkeep, mm. for your meals and all that stuff. If it gets to the point where the jail cell is overcrowded and the taxpayers look and go, why do we have 20,000 people in the Lowndes <laughs> County jail? What are we doing? Then all of a sudden, they're going to say, you know what? We can't afford to house all these people. So, chief of police, sheriff, stop arresting people for smoking pot. Stop. Stop it. We can't afford it. We can't. We cannot. We, the taxpayers of Lyons County, cannot afford to keep that many nonviolent offenders in jail. Right. But since, the, like I said, the current system, we don't have to pay it. The, you know, Chicago, they farm out all their prisoners all across the state, all, all their Violent criminals go to prisons all around the state. If Chicago had to pay to, to for a room and board for these guys for the incarceration, they'd probably uh, stop arresting them. Maybe. Hey, Addison, you you there, man? Hey, Addison. Hey, there he yeah, is. I was, I was just, just going to listen. No, I was going. Me and Danny were just talking about uh, Danny. This is Addison, host of one of our other shows here on the on the network. Uh, he's one one of the guys who lives in Missouri. Uh, Addison, could you explain okay. to us the uh, the the, <laughs> the taxation e- equation they use to, to to tax marijuana in Illinois? And we just lost him. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he just dipped out. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Agent Mike. Yeah. <laughs> he's my he's my CIA handler. He swears that, that I'm part of some kind of federal group keeping tabs on him. Uh, he'll be back in a minute, though. Um, now, One of the things I've always said, Hango, is that uh, I want the feds reading my emails. I want them listening to my phone conversations because they need to hear it more than anybody else. They need to hear <laughs> what I have to say, what I've written. You gotta preach you know? to them, huh? <laughs> you don't have to skulk around in the bushes. You want to know what I think about taxation? Ask me, Agent Mike. I will tell you. All right, Addison, you there? He's thinking about it. Yes, but I was just going to listen, though. Oh, did you hear what I asked you, though? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, I just I introduced you to Danny a minute, ago, a minute ago when you hopped in here. Uh, I wanted you to kind of, if you could, explain the equation that Illinois uses to tax marijuana. <laughs> oh, I'd be happy to do that. Um, <laughs> it's a nice mixture of pure tomfoolery and statist ass rape. <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly how I would describe it. Um, no, it's, it's based off of uh, THC content. In every single category. So they're like, you can only have this many milligrams. Um, and then it's a certain percent tax starting at like 25 and it can go all the way up to 40. So it's like 
taxing calories in food. Yes, yes, yeah. No, it's literally precisely exactly that. It's a fantastic analogy. It is pure retardation. It is. I mean, it's just there's no rhyme or reason for the way they did that. But that's kind of par for the course, yeah. though, isn't it? Oh, for Illinois, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I they, remember, they did that uh, with cigarettes. They did that with cigarettes. What, like ten years ago? They, they have the highest cigarette costs in the whole nation oh, yeah, because of their true. fucking taxes. I remember uh, when Al Gore was running for president and he came up with his fix for Social Security. And it was for every dollar that you contribute, the government's going to match it with a dollar. Oh, shit. And you're like, Al, where's the government get their dollar? You know? <laughs> they invented out of thin air. Well, yeah, they, they take my dollar, sit on it for 45 years, and then give it back to me whenever I, uh, whenever I retire. What a deal! Now I, I started yeah. listening to, to yeah. uh, started listening to Addison and Matt uh, probably four years ago, and so I, over the last four years, I got to watch I got to watch Ad, or listen to Addison go from kind of a newborn libertarian, like like a fresh out of the womb libertarian, and I got to watch over the process of about nine months, he slowly and slowly and slowly turned into my lane of more anarcho capitalism. I'm like, okay, keep coming. Uh-huh. Keep coming, buddy. You're almost there. Keep coming. <laughs> I was going to say, are you are you going to break out the N word? Because uh, no, I'm not. People like to call me nationalist. <laughs> I wouldn't do you like that. Well, no, I, I, I'm not a nationalist. I, I don't believe in the idea of the state. You put that on yourself. Uh, <laughs> well, I got. Uh, I'm going to say in an argument, but I had a good conversation with Adam Kokesh the other day. Uh, oh yeah, nice. but um, yeah, I'm very familiar. Evidently, I'm not angry enough. You know, uh, I've been a libertarian <laughs> since the '80s, and uh, I kind of look at the big picture and the advancement of what I call liberty. And uh, I should be getting arrested more, according to Adam. <laughs> I should be out there, you know, <laughs> defying the state at every possibility, at every every turn. And uh, anyway, Adam's a good friend. So you you dealt with those guys, um, uh, the guys from uh, New Hampshire, uh, Pete Ayer and those guys for a while. Uh, They were coming coming through Mississippi at some point and ran out of gas or something. They got arrested. They got (laughs) as nuts. It was crazy. The the Motorhome Diaries guys. Yep. Yeah, Uh, they got pulled over in a dry county, and uh, they had a gun. Locked away in a gun safe. The magazine was in a different gun safe. It was registered to one of them, a federal gun license thing. They had one unopened Olympia beer. Don't judge them. One <laughs> unopened Olympia beer in their refrigerator in their motorhome. So the uh, the county the county deputy arrested them for transporting alcohol through a dry county right. and put him in jail. And then they said, our dog hit. This is the funny part. Our dog uh, alerted on your motorhome, so we're going to search it. <laughs> going through, they fa- find a High Times magazine. And the deputy joked. He said, see, our dogs are so good, they can even smell an article oh, ha, ha, on Maryland. They're, they're yeah. so funny, yeah. It would have taken all I had not to punch him right in the face. (laughs) They took crowbars and screwdrivers and pulled the paneling off and ripped this motorhome apart and never found a thing. Imagine that. They settled. They sued, of course, and they settled out of court uh, because, well, there was no drugs and there was they were just they were actually on their way up to Meridian, Mississippi. And I told them I would buy them breakfast. Okay. You know, we're going to meet at a truck stop, and I was buying them breakfast, and they didn't make it. Yeah. Um, let's go back for a minute to, to the the prison. Pro- the, the biggest problem with prisons or jails, in my in my opinion, is just guys being held really for for no crime whatsoever, or not a. There's no violent crime involved. Uh, it's it's all guys who got busted with a joint in their pocket. 
And do you think? Yeah. Do you think that it's it's I don't know how to put this. Is it is it is the state just wanting money or is it the state just funneling money to prison to the prison system? You know, for the cops, this is what I think. For the cops, they think they're doing the right thing. Mm. They want to get this scourge off the street. And they think that they can have a a wonderful society if they could just get rid of the pot smokers. They honestly feel this way. And uh, so they arrest them. But as far as the, the penal system itself, yeah, it's a money-making thing. Uh, uh, the, the, the counties, you know, when they, they build a jail, they actually, the county itself makes money off of prisoners. Right. So it's, you know, there used to be that the only way you found yourself standing in front of a judge was if you hurt someone, burglary, rape, murder, extortion, theft, you created a victim. Now you just got to do something that somebody else doesn't like and they'll throw you in jail. So that is what changed. And it changed in the 19, early 1900s, I think. So, yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked on here many times. I don't get some of my guests don't like getting political. I respect that. Um, I can talk about, talk about other things besides politics, believe it or not. Um, wow. <laughs> imagine that. Um, <laughs> but I've always said that if people cared as much about local elections as they did national elections, everything would run so much smoother. Yeah. Well, that's why, and I'm not a federalist. I'm an ANCAP myself, but I know the system that was set up, you know, a bottom up type of governance right now it's top down and senators from all these other states can vote to, I don't care, make marijuana legal or illegal in the state of Mississippi. They can vote to increase our taxes. That's not local governance, you know? So it used to be, the way it was designed, all governance starts from the bottom up, from the mayor's office. It's so much easier to go down to the mayor's office, kick his door and go, what the hell are you doing? Than it is for me to drive to 50 states and catch all two of their senators, you know, and all 435 congressmen, uh, so or representatives. So the bot, that's why bottom-up governance, local governance is so important, because if somebody's doing something wrong, it's easier to go down there and kick their door in and make your arguments to them. Absolutely. You know, if the mayor's, if the mayor's got to face you on election day, if he's got a face you walking down the street in a coffee shop, he's going to be a little bit more cognizant of what he's doing. I agree. But I can tell you right now, the senator out in Vermont doesn't care about <laughs> what he's doing to people in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so. you, you you served in the Navy for however long. You were in there for a while, weren't you? Yeah, 20 years. Okay. so I retired. Right. I, I thought I thought that you had retired from the Navy. What do we need to do in America to have a to have good relationships with other countries without getting our nose in their business? Um, I'm going to go radical on you here. We need to disband the military, and this is what I'm saying. Again, I look back to history. If we've got 50 militias. 50 state militias instead of one army that goes out to do the bidding of say the state department. That's the way it's happening now is our state department gets in a pissing contest with the equivalent state department in wherever and they bitch at each other. And then all of a sudden we're sending troops or they're, we're fighting those. So if we had 50 separate militias with no standing army, just 50 separate militia, then if the state department has a beef with, with Hango Stan, then uh, then the, uh, uh, the the governor of that particular state could go. Yeah, I'm not going to send troops. I'm not going to send troops over here to this country. I have no I have no beef with Hango Stan. So what? But so that's kind of the problem is we do have a standing army that really, really, really takes their orders from the State Department. 
Now we call the president commander in chief. We've got a joint chiefs of staff and a Pentagon and all this, but it's the state department that gets us in beefs. The state department doesn't like this guy that was elected and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And pretty soon, you know, they're bombing one of our embassies or, or whatever they're doing. So it's this interventionism that, you know, <laughs> Trump was accused of, uh, uh, getting the Russians involved or the Russians manipulating our elections. And I just want to say to the State Department, where do you think the Russians learned that, State Department? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well, we've been doing that for years. So, uh, yes, we've been you know, meddling in the other countries' elections for years. Yeah, that's what I was talking so, about back when, when, when Ron Paul was running for president and whatnot. And that's what really kind of you know put the, the bug in my brain. About hey, you know, we don't have to pick her left or right. Even though Ron Paul ran as a Republican, he was he was very libertarian in, in his views, and to see him dress down other people on the stage about CIA intervention in Iran and tell them what blowback was, you know, and yeah. it just oh, I was like, holy crap, this you know. This guy is speaking the truth, and no one likes it. <laughs> They're trying to wave him off, uh, not talk about it. I'm surprised he's still alive. I really am. <laughs> I thought he would. <laughs> I thought he would have been Epstein by now. Yeah. Well. Oh, did you ever meet John McCarthy when he was running for for Libertarian? Oh yeah. Candidate. Oh yeah. So what do yeah. you what do you think? Do you think he actually committed suicide? I look. I'll say this. No, I do not. But I will also say we will never, ever, ever, ever know. Yeah. Everybody can have their own suspicions, but will anyone have any proof? No. No. We. It, it'll go, you know, we quit talking about Epstein, you know, and before that, Foster with mm. the Clinton administration. Time, you know, history says, you know, time will, will cure this. There'll be people all pissed off for a month or a year or maybe two or three years, and then it kind of goes away. There'll be another something that draws their attention. Look, a squirrel. Yeah, <laughs> and people forget all about it. What was your what, was, what did you think about about uh, Mr. McAfee when you met him? <laughs> He's a nut. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I wish I had the money he did to squander on stuff he squandered it on. Right. I mean, not a criticism, but I mean, wow, he was uh, he was out there and it was good. Uh, I talked to him in Biloxi uh, a couple years ago, and uh, probably four years. What, what year is this? Twenty twenty one. Wow, it's been a while. Uh, yeah, I talked to him probably six or eight years ago, and uh, he was. Uh, he was into it, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see he became a libertarian. Mm. I'm glad to see it. So, yeah. Um, so how how has the military changed, or has it changed since you? I mean, during, when you served, it was during the Cold War, right? So, has it changed really at all, or is it just another another squirrel to chase, as you say? Yeah. I, it, well, I'm sure this changed a little bit, you know, here and there, but, uh, no, nah, it's still the same thing. You got a bunch of people that took an oath that take an oath to protect and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They take that oath and then they, within a year or two, they go over and they violate that oath, you know, because someone told them to. And that's the same thing that's been happening forever. You know, that was the oath you take. Uh, I swear to protect and defend the Constitution, not not the American government, not Congressman Billy Bob, but I swear to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You got to ask yourself, what is a domestic terror or a domestic enemy to the Constitution? You know, um, so no, nothing's really changed. People take that oath and then they rush off and you know, kill whoever the state department wants them to. Right. Would you be willing to tell the story about you rescue, you rescuing the, uh, the Russian diver, you and your crew? 
Yeah. I'm, you want to hear it now? Yeah, go ahead and lay it on your vibe. This is such an interesting story. Uh, uh, when Because you, oh. you had posted the article from the news clipping of where it was published, and I showed it to, yeah. to my wife, and she, and she was like, holy crap, you know? It was in the Moscow Times. You know, Hango, this was this was before, during the Cold War. It was before the uh, fall of the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union. And uh, I was stationed. I'm a Navy diver, uh, trained in medicine and trained in uh, decompression sickness and using a recompression chamber and all that stuff. Well, we were off the east coast of Africa, and we got a call in the middle of the night about a Soviet ship that was outside the Seychelles Islands, and they had two uh, Soviet scientists that were suffering from decompression sickness and arterial gas embolisms, which are the most horrific. We went out there. It took us about six weeks to treat them and give them to where they could walk again, and they were they were fine. When we first got there, they were basically dead from the neck down. They were paralyzed, unconscious, and uh, uh, unresponsive to anything. So, But anyway, after six weeks, we got them back to normal. It was myself and uh, three others. And uh, we, did, uh, <laughs> we did good. Uh, I, th- I think we saved their life without a doubt. The, the Russians, they were trying to treat these guys using old technology. You know, diving, this deep diving and decompression sickness treatment, it's a relatively new science. You know, back in the 1950s and 60s is when most of the research was done. Well, we've learned a lot since the 1950s and 60s. Oh, for sure. The Russians haven't. <laughs> They're still using 1950s and 60s technology and procedures and protocols, and that was what was killing those Russian divers. But it took us a little while to convince them to let us have the treatment. Their bureaucracy was was killing them. Uh, the captain of the ship and the uh, their mission, the guy that was in charge of that mission, they did not want to call Moscow and ask Moscow for permission to turn this recompression chamber treatment over to a bunch of Americans because that's their, this is the old Soviet Union. You know, they're right. probably going to end up in some, out in Siberia somewhere. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, we convinced them to call Moscow. Moscow gave them their permission to turn this treatment over to us. And then, like I said, six weeks later, uh, uh, they were we, Nikolai, the big guy. He was fine. Perfect. The other guy, Yuri, he had a small limp, but through treat through follow-up treatments, he's going to get rid of that limp. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing is Yuri was on the ground crew back in the 1970 something. They had a, uh, it's called the Apollo Soyuz program where an Apollo space capsule and a Soyuz space capsule kind of mated in outer space, and the cosmonaut and the astronaut reached through and shook hands. Well, everybody on that mission, Yuri was on the ground crew of that mission, but Yuri, uh, everybody on the ground crew and in space got a a, uh, a friendship pin, it's called. It's a, a American flag. It's a lapel pin. Uh, American flag and a, the hammer and circle, the Russian flag, with a handshake in between. Well, Yuri gave me his pen because he was on the ground crew. So oh, wow. anyway, since I saved his life, he and he didn't speak English, but we had we did have an interpreter out there. So he gave me his pen. Everybody on the ship, I found the the Russian people to be magnificently friendly and appreciative, and I wanted to hang out with them some more, you know. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a bitch that our government and their government can't get along. Mm. But you put some Russian people with some American people. We get along. Amazing. It's the two governments that could not get along back then. <laughs> you know, that's I've I talked to people before about when we go, we travel internationally. When we go to, especially back, uh, gosh, we went to Ireland. It was it was just after the Bush administration, and and tensions were still not relations still weren't the best with <laughs> with the rest of the world due to you know bombing countries that had nothing to do with. Yeah, nine eleven terror attacks. Um, 
and I, I'm always kind of apprehensive to say where I'm from, you know, um, our, the South doesn't have the best reputation in, in the U S right. You know? And so like, right. when we go to the Caribbean, I'll, they, people say, where are you from? Like the States. And they, well, what part the South, what part of the South you say, you're like, oh, okay. I'm like, you don't think that I'm going to, you know, pull out a Robin hood. You think I'm, I'm actually okay. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and no one has ever given me flack ever about being from the States. It's amazing that, you know, citizens of the world can get along together without the government being involved in yeah. any of it. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. That's the, the conversation we were just having about the military. You know, I was in the military for 20 years. Sometimes the commanding officer would, would say, go over there and kill that guy. And I'm like, I don't really have a beef with you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I, I don't. You go over and kill him. I want to tell him, you know. That's, uh, that's me on my pay grade. What are you talking about killing? Yeah. Um, uh, what, what's your uh, – this is something we talk about a lot when I have uh, my, my friends on here. And I know you're all about it yourself. Um, the, the, the debt we're in in this country. And I know this is going to get you cranked up. It drives me nuts as well. Um, is there any way out of it? Financial collapse, the collapse of the dollar. And it's, I hate to say it, but I, the financial collapse is the only way out of it. And the recovery scares me to death Yeah, because it won't be a free market approach to recovery. It will be, uh, some sort of, again, another fiat currency, another, uh, Social like command and control, you know, there's going to be some flamboyant, charismatic guy that steps up. Let's call him Adolf. <laughs> there's going to be some char- charismatic, flamboyant guy that steps up, and everybody says, yeah, 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 yeah. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, burning books and and bossing people around. Right. So, well, Do you think cryptocurrency will have any kind of – or do you think cryptocurrency is already being, being controlled already? Is that, is that a no. way to – around that at all um no i think cryptocurrency will be i I think cryptocurrency is free and above anything government does i believe it's what it's advertised to be a free market approach to money to uh currency with that being said when economic collapse comes i'm not sure we're going to have Wi-Fi or internet wow. or a way to use cryptocurrencies. And it's probably going to take 10 or 15 Nah, it'll take about a year to get some sort of mechanism up where cryptocurrencies will work again. Yeah. But now, we were talking the other night and I, I had said, you know, even five years ago, if they would have pulled the bandaid off and stopped printing checks, yeah, there would have been a, a pretty big hit. But the recovery would already be on underway, and now it's just yeah. like it's just perpetual. It keep, the more they print, it's going to be next. It's going to be impossible to recover from it. But hang on, they they don't see it that way. I got I have a friend who's a Democrat senator, a, an acquaintance. I'll call him that, and we have these discussions, and he says, "Well, it's clear that you do not understand." you know, modern monetary policy. And I'm like, well, I do. That's the problem. I do understand. I don't think you understand it, <laughs> you know, uh, but this debt spending, you know, this Keynesian, it's, it's Keynesianism and debt spending and how it can be perpetual. They believe it can be perpetual. And if you need more print it, they believe that's a, an acceptable economic system. So, and I go ahead. You know, I don't know why, out of the history of mankind, the smartest people in the entire universe forever and ever and ever never thought of that. Why don't we just print more money? <laughs> <laughs> but now these these dumbasses over the past fifty years think, oh, that's the cure. We'll just print more money. Ah. So it, you think there's there's no way to stop it now? It's, it's just it's a no. snowball. And I don't know when it's going to happen. I know that all fiat currencies crash. All. 
in the history of mankind, all fiat currencies crash. It's just a matter of time. Now, I don't know whether the, the Federal Reserve notes, the U.S. dollar is going to crash next year, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50. I don't know how long they can they can keep propping it up. Keep up the charade. But eventually, someday, it's going to crash. There's no way around it. So, uh, uh, you know, I do live on a boat, and the name of my boat is Danistan. Right. It's uh, it's it's uh, forty six foot of uh, the sovereign territory of Danistan, and I am the king of Danistan. <laughs> and you can pull the anchor and go whenever you're ready. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Hey, what happened down there? I saw the other day you were talking about a, a barge hit the dam or something. What or the lock? What was going oh, on yeah. down there? The uh, there was a flood because of all the rains. There was a uh, flood, and it was above the roads out here about. You know, three feet, about waist high above all the roads. Yeah, you got flooded out of your boat. And a barge. My boat did fine. It <laughs> floats. No, it's a boat. <laughs> so, uh, there, there was a barge that sank like three or four miles up the river. And then the current carried it down. Oh. And, of course, the dam caught it. It rested up against the dam, which was blocking the tainer gates, which was trying to let the water out. So it was a mess. They had to get a big salvage crew up here and uh, lift it up, bring, bring it out. Now, when you were, did so. you do salvage and recovery diving in the Navy or did oh, you yeah. do? Okay. I didn't know yeah. what, 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 what exactly you did. I did everything. Uh, I did a lot of salvage. We refloated an old world war two destroyer escort. Funny story. The coast guard wanted to get rid of this thing. So the Navy hauled it out. The destroyer escort, they cleaned it up, got rid of all the oil and everything. They hauled it out, and then they used it for target practice. And they shot it. I think there was 48 holes in it, and it sank. And then the Coast Guard came back and said, you know what? You sank that in the wrong spot. We wanted it 10 miles up the coast. They, they sank it to make turn it into an artificial reef. Right. You know, uh, barnacles and stuff start growing on it and provide habitat to, to fish. And so the Coast Guard hired us to go down there and patch up the 48 holes and refloat this ship, haul it 10 miles up the coast and sink it again, which was, it was a fun job. Sounds like it. <laughs> but I also did the uh, spec war stuff. We, I was on a uh, uh, submarine that had these little uh, mini subs, if you will, little SDVs and uh, we'd load them up with seals and take off. Shoot them out. Yep. <laughs> so I did it all. So what do you think uh, – so we got midterm elections coming up, coming up here next year, about a year away. So yeah. what's going to happen in Washington, or, is it, or does it even matter? What's going to happen in Washington? Uh, yeah, I don't – it's – let me answer your second question. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, they – the Republicans might win back one of the, you know, the, the house, uh, they might, they, they might win the presidency, but it's going to be the same stuff. It's going to be a command and control type structure where if the government doesn't want you smoking weed, you're not going to smoke weed. If they, they're going to try to manipulate the price of corn and they're going to, you know, and that's, that's my big thing. Hango is the, the red team versus blue team, you know, this whole last thing, you had Trump and Biden arguing back and forth during the campaign season. And Trump would say, only I can manage the price of corn, you know, vote for me and I will get bring the price of corn down. And Biden says, no, you vote for me and I'll bring the price of corn down. And I'm over here like, can you get your hands off the corn? <laughs> Stop touching the corn. Can you not meddle in corn? Is there something that you don't, that you won't touch? I mean, I, I look at everything around me, and I try to find one thing that doesn't have a government fingerprint on it. Mm. One thing. My beer label. I'm, I'm sorry, for the record, I am drinking a Pabst Blue Ribbon in a bottle right now. And uh, that, uh, that label has government fingerprints all over it from the adhesive the adhesive has to be approved by the department of adhesive approval something something uh you know uh, surgeon general warning the Sur surgeon general warning on the side of it yeah 
every my pillows, uh, my cell phone cover, the protective case. I'm just looking around at stuff I see. My socks, my socks. They're they're designed. Their thread count has to be approved by government. Right. I mean, I just want to say, and so that's why the next election coming up, you're going to have red team saying, you know, vote for me, and we'll manage the thread count in your socks a lot better than the Republican will, you know, and vice versa. I just want government to take their hands off the stuff. So is there any place, in your opinion, that the federal government should be? Um, that they can be. I'm, I'm not going to use the word should. Okay, can but be. Arbitration. Uh, our courts, there's, there, there needs to be a mechanism. And I'm not going to say the state, but there needs to be a mechanism to where two people who have a dispute can go through arbitration. Uh, I, in contracts, we do it all the time. We, we lay out the contract and we say, you know, that we're, that we're going to do this and you guys are going to do this and we're going to pay you that much. And you're going to do this and that and that. And if there's ever a dispute in any of this, we choose Hango Wood to be, be uh, the arbiter. And we both agree to who the arbiter is going to be. He doesn't work for the state. He's just a private dude out there. So we can privatize this arbitration. However, some people won't do that. I mean, when you buy an apple in a convenience store, are you signing a, uh, a contract to agree to this guy as an arbiter? You know, I, I, I don't know how, how we fix that. Right. Maybe you do, you know, maybe there's, there's a sign on the door that says anything that happens is in the store. Joseph P. Frump is our arbiter is our impartial arbiter. If you don't want to use him as an impartial arbiter, then don't buy stuff in the store. Right. You know, there's got to be some way we can do away with the court system. Yeah, I think there could be, um, especially in business. Uh, I mean, major league yeah. baseball contracts, uh, after so many years of service, the guys can go into arbitration with a rookie contract. I think they sign like a six-year mm-hmm. rookie contract. And after three years, when they're negotiating their their next next uh, after the third year of service with that team, they can go into arbitration if they do not if they don't come to terms with the team themselves. So I don't see yeah. why in in business, especially in private businesses, doing business with each other, why there can't be some kind of civil arbitration. Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, it, it should be set up that way. Be, and that's really what a judge in, in the federal court system, the, the local court system, a judge is supposed to be an impartial arbiter. Supposed to be. Now, supposed to be. Now they've become the enforcement mechanism. You know, we've got the three branches of government, uh, the executive, the the uh, uh, legislative, and the judicial. It's supposed to be three separate branches of government but now our legislature passes a law that says you got to wear a yellow hat on wednesday and if you get caught without <laughs> you wearing your yellow hat on wednesday you stand in front of a judge and the judge says well the legislature's you clearly violated the law guilty as charged well he's not being impartial he's he's sided with the legislature right so the impartial arbiter says yeah uh legislator you said you want him to wear a yellow hat he wasn't wearing a yellow hat uh, trot out the victim, trot out somebody that's been harmed by him, not wearing a yellow hat, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, but we don't have that anymore. We just have a judge that says, I find you guilty, pay the lady. Right. And so impartial arbiters, I think is something that we could really, if we were to c- come up with a system, and I think the market, whatever that is, I think the market would come up with an effective system of Im- impartial arbitration, and we could probably limit the size, scope, and role of government, at least in the judicial branch of government. Yeah. You know? So you've, you've ran several campaigns from state to national level, I believe. I know at least right. national level. I don't know if you ran anything in the state or not. Um, on the campaign trail, do you get good responses from people when you're, pitch, when you're pitching, when you're trying to sell libertarianism to people? Uh, Oh yeah, yeah, I do actually. Uh, it was kind of uh, 
I've brought the crowd into a roar at a couple of different debates. One was with a judge. Funny you should be talking about that. Uh, guy was, we were running for the U.S. House of Representatives and the Republican, and this was back when the Patriot Act first came out. And this judge I'm running against, I'm not going to mention his name, but uh, I, they asked me how I felt about the Patriot Act, and I told them. And then it was the judge's turn to give his side. And he stands up at the podium, and he gives about 10 or 15 minutes. But he, he says, basically, he says, you know, in times of war, certain concessions have to be made by the oh. American citizen. And, since he, and he goes, I know Mr. Bedwell does not believe that or does not uh, agree with that, but it is what it is. Well, the rules of the debate were, since he used my name or referenced me, I got to respond. So the moderator says, Mr. Bedwell, do you want to respond? And I said, yes. I walk slowly up to the podium. I grab the microphone. I wish you could see it. <laughs> I grab the microphone, and I said, judge over my dead body. I slammed the microphone down and went and sat down. And everybody in the whole – it was actually done in a courtroom. Everybody <laughs> applauded and stuff. So, uh, yeah, um, I, I did a gun rally up in Guntown, Mississippi. And uh, all the politicians were giving their little lame speeches, and I stood up there. And everybody had a you know an AR-15, or they, they were open carrying. And there was probably 300 guns out there. And I stood up there and said, you know what? I think this is probably the safest place to be in all of Mississippi. Right here is the safest place to be. I said, it's probably safer than any school. It's safer than any workplace regulated by OSHA, you know? Absolutely. And uh, the people went nuts there. So, yeah, I think they responded to my libertarian message uh, pretty good. I mean, I, I tried to stay pure, and I also understand that in a campaign, you have to tickle ears. Yeah. I mean, in a campaign, you have to state things in such a way that the person listening nods his head and go, yeah, yeah, you're right. So you, they, they might have been the, you know, the, the biggest Bush supporter ever. And then you talk about these violations of, of the Patriot Act and basic civil rights and uh, this stuff of the Constitution. You know, you talk about that. And they suck it up. Yeah. I've, it's um, when I've talked to my friends before about libertarianism or anarcho capitalism, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever label you want to put on, whatever I, I, I'm into. Um, the people on the, my friends on the right would say, so you're going to allow gay folks to marry? I said, I don't care who it is. <laughs> If they're in a consensual adult relationship, the government shouldn't have any say in it. There should be no marriage license. <laughs> it should either be a religious ceremony between them and their God, or it should be a civil contract. Right. Why is you know, the government getting a I cut off that. of what off, off my marriage? Why, why is the government getting a, getting a slice before I even put a ring on her finger? Right. I addressed that during one of my campaigns because, I mean, they tried to do these gotcha questions. And uh, uh, w one of them was about gay marriage. And I said, well, let's, and there was a, I could tell the audience, a heavy Christian audience. And I'm, they said, well, um, think back to the days when Jesus walked the earth. You know, what if, you know, this whole, if, if Caesar would have came to Jesus and said, look, man, this, this whole uh, holy matrimony thing, it's all well and good. But before anybody gets married in the eyes of God, they've got to have me. Caesar's permission to get married. I said, I would probably take the same position that Caesar takes or that Jesus takes. Right. That, sorry, this holy covenant between two people and their God, Caesar doesn't get in there at all. Right. You know? Well, then so, I have, I'd have my friends on the blue side say, well, if you're not going to tax people, how are we going to pay for all this? We're not. We're not paying for it now. Yeah. <laughs> it's all made up. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I think it was uh, Thomas Sowell who said, uh, talking about removing the income tax. And they, they said, what are you going to replace it with? He goes, well, when you when you put out a fire, what do you replace it with? Right. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So 
<clears throat> Danny, I, I, I really appreciate you being on here, man. I, I, I thank you a lot yeah. for coming for coming on. Um, I, I was just trying to find a, a time when I could <clears throat> get in touch with you to see if you'd want to do it. I know you've been on a couple of their podcasts. You you you'd call like the uh, or you're on like the FM talks uh, shows yeah. sometime. Yeah. And I was hoping you could. I was hoping you could make time for little old me to sit down for about an hour or so and just shoot, shoot the bull. Anytime <laughs> you want to, you want to chat, call me up, man. I'll do your show anytime. I was, I woke up the other day, get ready to go to work. Uh, I guess it was Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon and I had a notification on my phone. Danny Bibbles joined telegram. I'm like, Holy shit. Danny's on telegram. Let's, let's shoot him a message right quick. <laughs> I was hoping I'd be able to catch you. I don't know if you were going to be out in the middle of the ocean somewhere with no connection or something. I just wanted to make sure I could schedule a time when when you were going to be in dock. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did. So. I got you. <laughs> Danny, thanks so much for being on here, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Be sure to go by tripodbroadcasting.com to check out all the shows we have there. Also, go by ebles.com, E-A-B-L-E-S and save 15% on some premium CBD by using the promo code HANGO. Also, go by MyDelta8.com. Once again, Danny, thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to come back next time. I love all y'all. Bye.